Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adi Aladipo, the journalist and broadcaster, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. We live in an age of envy and resentment. Managers, like players, are targets because of their wealth and their prominence. Instead of concentrating on cash and celebrity, we should be celebrating common humanity and the importance of compassion. Jurgen Klopp has suffered in silence over recent days. He lost his mother last month and was unable to attend her funeral. He reminds us that those involved in the game have hidden stories, emotions they feel they cannot share. They're flesh and blood, like you and me. So, when you see Klopp in a game of great importance at Leicester on Saturday lunchtime, remember he's a fan first, a football manager second. People forget that too easily, don't they, Addy? Yeah, I think we forget that not only managers, but that footballers are not robots either. They're fans and they're humans and they're sons and fathers and uncles as well. It's difficult to to understand what Klopp would have been going through in the last sort of four to five weeks. The results for Liverpool haven't been good and you've seen him on the touchline be a bit tetchy in interviews after and, and you're now understanding, yes, he's always a bit tetchy, Klopp. He's got that about him, but you're understanding why... He is showing a lot more emotion than he normally does just because of what he's having to deal with. And I think we as people, and all of us, broadcasters, journalists, fans, should almost understand that people do go through things behind the scenes that they don't show. It's not in the, it's not on the front pages all the time. And Klopp clearly has been going through a lot in this last month. It, it's very sad to know as well that he can't travel to Germany for the funeral. So Klopp's been dealing with all this emotion while also trying to galvanise the champions to try and get back in the title race. So it's been a lot from Jurgen Klopp. And I think people that people that have been making memes about him, making jokes about the way in which he's conducted himself in the last month, probably have to take a look at themselves and realise there is more to life than football. And, and I think Klopp's shown this. Look, we love Klopp. I've ever, I think ever since he's come to the Premier League, he's he's smile, he's, he's drive, he's tenacity. We've all enjoyed we can all get behind him. And I think it's important that, and, and it's quite touching as well, that they actually plays Brendan Rodgers, who, who, who they have a very close relationship with. And, and fingers crossed, they can, say, they can share a socially distanced glass of wine after the game. I, I think he needs that. 
we almost seen Klopp go out and hug all the players all the time. I think sometimes it needs to be reversed. I think he needs a big hug as well. Yeah, well, you know, certainly talking to managers, I, I did a book around management and what struck me was how self-contained they felt they had to be and how almost self-conscious they were of the price of their obsession. You know, there was one manager who actually wasn't in the book, but a, a well-known manager called me afterwards and said, look, you were you were talking about my life. And he went on to talk about the strain of coming home from a game. He locked himself away in his study, drained two bottles of red wine, and he was very conscious that he was driving his family and his kids away from him. And he said, I can't, I can't stop myself. So they are, these people have got a fantastic job. They're well paid. But frankly, that's irrelevant. And I suppose we can extend that across the game, can't we, Glenn? Yes, I mean, um, look at the abuse that Mike Dean had the other day. I mean, he's a human being as well. And, I mean, the sacrifices being made, particularly by um, the overseas players, you know, I mean, this applies, obviously, all walks of, walks of business and life. It's not just, and I've got relatives who've got uh, relatives overseas, but, I mean, Ruben Neves the other day, I mean, he watched the birth of his third child on the phone, on his phone, on the team bus, on the way to a game. Because, obviously, he can't go back to Portugal because then he gets put in quarantine and he misses two weeks' matches and so on. The England women's squad picked the other day. They had to leave some players out because of the quarantine rules. In fact, the manager, the injury manager, hasn't even come here yet. So the, the pandemic has caused a huge amount of problems in terms of people moving between countries, which is obviously was appeared so easy only a year ago. And it's also left a lot of people with time on their hands, which I think is partly contributed to the social media abuse and all that, remember all that stuff about be kinder at the start of the pandemic work. Well, that seems to be forgotten fairly quickly. You know, people are sitting around at home, they're bored, they're looking for a reaction, you know, they're just throwing stuff out there. Yeah, and, they, and they're quite pleased when they do get a bit of a reaction. But, yeah, there are real people at the end of this. I've, you know, um, most journalists, I suspect, have received some kind of social media abuse at some level or other. And, you know, a much, much smaller level than players tend to get. Uh, it's not very pleasant. Yeah, and I don't think people are doing it are aware of the impact it has because it, unless they're on the receiving end themselves. Yeah, I, I want to dwell on on you know the latest. Well, it's a horrible word in the circumstances, but the latest examples of of racial abuse, you know, overnight even uh, later on in the in the show. Just picking up on you know the the comparisons that will be made between Klopp and Rogers on Saturday. You know, it's the lunchtime game on BT Sport. I suppose you know they're both linked by the emotional bonds of a Liverpool manager with a very emotionally engaged fan base. You know, I remember talking to Rodgers when he was at Anfield and he had, you know, he, he was asked to sign a flag that every Liverpool manager had signed, you know, right back to sort of Shankly. And he felt this great sense of, I suppose, being a custodian for the football club. He is a deeper guy than people make out. It's not just the David Brent figure that we, we hear about. And, and frankly, you know, I think probably all of us have exaggerated a little bit when we've written about him. <laughs> but do you think he's been more hurt by the ridicule that he that he lets on, Addy? And do you, how do you think he's developed as a manager since leaving Anfield? Yeah, he's definitely hurt by the ridicule just because I think people almost put that in front of his success. I think, yes, he didn't win a trophy at Anfield, but... I think he was the catalyst to turn around what we're seeing Jurgen Klopp and this current Liverpool side do now. I think we can't forget that team he had with Suarez and Sterling and Sturridge and Coutinho 
and Gerard playing that deeper role. It was a fantastic side and they were unlucky, I think, not to win the league. With regards to how he's improved as a manager and where he is now, I think he's a fantastic manager. I really do. I think he's one of the best in the Premier League. I think him going away to Celtic, almost, I think, it's going to be, I think, quite similar to what Pochettino's doing at PSG, where you go somewhere, you win trophies, you're expected to win them, but you win them. It then kind of takes that that pressure off your back, knowing, okay, I, I've done that, now let me go and kick on. And I think he's done that with, with Leicester City. Yeah, I think they fell off a cliff last season. I think they should have got top four. But I think he's starting to build a team at Leicester City that I think will might miss out on top four again but that's no slight on them just because I think the teams around them are so good but a team now that will always be in that conversation for a top six spot I think he's taken the over-reliance on Jamie Vardy he's managed his minutes well I think he's improved players like Harvey Barnes and James Madison and Yuri Tielemans in the midfield I think he's, he's a great manager and look this is no slight on Leicester City but I do think if a big job comes up again I think he has to be in the reckoning for it just because of that experience from Liverpool, managing a big club, managing a massive club in Scotland and the job he's doing at Leicester City right now. Top, top manager. And look, the Brent, the David Brent thing's always going to be there just because of the way in which he models himself. But let's forget him. Let's not think about him as David Brent rather than think about him as a top, top manager in a, man in a league that's full of top, top managers. You know, I understand what you're talking about there, Addy, in terms of going for a, quote, big job, close quotes. But... Let's face it, Leicester is a big club now. You, when you think about it, you've got owners who are willing to invest. You've got great infrastructure there, terrific, well-proven recruitment. You've got everything you need in a modern football club there as a manager. You know, I had a bit of a, a smile the other day. I, you know, I read a piece about whether Leicester were deserving of a place in the, quotes top seven. Well, I found that patronising, to be honest. I think they've got as much, if not more, chance to secure a top four place than Liverpool at the moment. What do you reckon, Glenn? I would say so. I mean, you say about, you know, Brendan getting a job at a big club. I was thinking, well, I mean, obviously there are bigger clubs in Leicester. I mean, Manchester United, Liverpool. Yeah, but then Spurs, for example. Are Spurs a bigger club than Leicester? What have Spurs won in the last 10 years at Leicester, you know, compared to Leicester? Yeah, I know they have a bigger ground and you, they obviously have a bigger fan base. But Sunderland have a bigger fan base than Leicester, and they're in the third division. So <laughs> it's not just about the fan base. Yeah, it's about the other package. And yeah, they do have uh, owners who are prepared to invest. Yeah, they've got good players. I mean, I guess they become a big. You can become a big club when you stop becoming a selling club. But almost everyone is a selling club. Uh, yeah, Liverpool sold still players to Barcelona. There are very few clubs that are not selling clubs at some point in the food chain. So you could argue that quite a lot of our big clubs are prepared to sell if necessary. So yeah, and. I think that is, to an extent, though, the next step. If Brendan can get them into the Champions League, and I don't see any reason why they can't not. I mean, they're a good side, they're playing well, they do need to keep key players fit, but I guess that applies to most teams. I mean, look at Liverpool, you know, with their problems in defence. So if they can keep players fit, if they can get the Champions League, and they're playing, you know, there's some terrific stuff, they get the odd result like the Leeds game, so you wonder whether they can keep up the intensity game after game after game. But they're good to watch, they're well organised, they have a plan, they know how to deal with opponents. I mean, they've got quite a few commitments now, having progressed in the FA Cup as well. And of course, they're still in the Europa League. But if they get the Champions League and they start getting the Champions League, you know, one season, two seasons, three seasons, on a regular basis, then they become part of that elite group. Yeah, just yeah. as much as, you know, we can look at teams overseas who we've seen come into regular European competition, we start perceiving of them as part of that elite group. And, and you know, clubs will look from overseas, they say, oh, you know, Leicester, they're a Champions League team. You know, I want to join them. So you, there is part of that. It takes time to develop that. I guess you need that history. 
to an extent you need a historical background but we can all think of clubs quite a few in the championship who have had that historical background and obviously they're not big clubs at the moment I mean yeah Forrester won two European Cups but no one will call them a big club at the moment but two European mm-hmm. Cups is um, two more than Arsenal for example yeah, I suppose with Leicester's, I suppose there's a, it feels like there's a different dynamic to 2016. Better balance, perhaps greater depth. Looking at Liverpool, Addy, their decline has been obvious over recent weeks. What specifics need to be addressed to actually turn it around? I actually think Klopp's tried to look at the specifics in the last couple of seasons. I've always felt they needed a creative midfielder. They went out and spent a lot of money on what they thought was that guy in Naby Keita. He's suffered horrific injuries. And I think they might have to look at what they do with Nebuchadnezzar in the summer. They've got Thiago. Again, that guy that can maybe thread the ball through the eye of the needle. It hasn't quite worked out for him, but I think it's not worked out because he's not had Fabinho and Henderson right next to him. I felt they needed another goal scorer. They've got that in Jota. So I think he's identified the problems. He's just struggled a lot with injuries and it has been horrific injuries. Look, every club has suffered them, uh, no doubt, throughout this season. But I think Liverpool, I mean, you, you just can't, foresee a, a season where your three centre-backs go off injured. You can't foresee a season where Naby Keita, Oxlade-Chamberlain and Jota all go out injured as well. And those are all creative midfielders and creative forward players that Liverpool would have wanted. I, I do think they're going to have to look at getting more creativity in that midfield. Look, Liverpool have over-relied on the likes of Trent and Robertson for assists and creative chances. I think they need to look at it. I don't think Liverpool have a plan B. I think if it doesn't work one way, Klopp seems to stick to that, and I think they need to address that. But I do think if Liverpool have Van Dijk at the back and Gomez and and then Jota's in that squad and Naby Keita can get there, it's, it's, it's a very, very strong team. I don't think they can do what Man City do and go out and spend 100, 200 million. They just don't simply have that. And I think we've seen that in the way in which they've recruited Ben Davis and Kabak. They just simply don't have the money to go out there and spend 60, 70, 80 million again. So I think Klopp's going to just pray to God that they can get some of these players fit again. I think if they can, they're not that far away. Yeah, I think this Liverpool being, quotes, bad champions, close quotes, that sort of narrative is just so lazy. It's ridiculous. I think more immediately, Glenn, are we looking at a case here of of almost mental fatigue, too many mini crises to deal with? I think mental and physical. I mean, the way Liverpool play it does place high intensity on their on the particular midfield and the and, so, and the forwards even in, pre, in closing and pressing down the, the fullbacks going up and down. It's a very high intensity game uh, the way Liverpool play, and there's a limit to how long you can keep that going. I would have thought over two or three seasons with the same players anyway. Adding the intensity of matches this season, the, 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 this blizzard of games we're having, where you seem to be playing all the time, and it must be very difficult to get the um, you know, to get the rest. I mean, the athletes need rest as well as they need time on the training ground as well as they need all the other stuff. And as you say, it's a mental respite as well as a physical respite. So I think that that's an element, just simply exhaustion. And it's not easy to retain the title. Only Manchester City in 2019 have retained the title this decade. It's not like they're the only champions who haven't managed to you know, keep up that intensity. Once you get to the mountaintop, the hard part is become staying there. Plus uh, the energy... Injuries would not stuff out of any team, particularly getting them all in the same, same place. And effectively, they lost Henderson because he's gone back to play at half. And obviously, opponents work you out. 
Yeah, the, mm. you know, opponents were worked out. Yeah, you know, let's stop Trent. Let's stop Robertson. Yeah, you know, stop the you know, Mane and Salah coming inside and you know try and push them. Opponents do work you out a little bit, and therefore you have to find different ways. And, you know, and as Eddie said, I think Klopp has tried to change the narrative in midfield and you know, create the midfield's a bit more creative. But again, those players that come in for various reasons haven't worked out, so they're still back on Plan A, which opponents have found ways to stop. So I think it's a combination of things, but it really isn't that easy to retain the title. Not in England, anyway. Yeah, well, we, you know, lest we forget, Manchester City lost seven games last season. I suppose now all we're doing is getting ready for the coronation. 15 wins on the bounce, another record. Pep had his 200th win in English football on, uh, on Wednesday evening. Looks like the title's going to be all but won by March the 6th and then Manchester derby, doesn't it, um, Addy? Yeah, maybe even sooner as well. I mean, Manchester City right now, look absolutely frightening. And look, credit to Guardiola. When he signed that contract extension, I was maybe just thinking, look, the target's just going to be the Champions League. He, he, since he's been in England, has always gone for absolutely every trophy. One thing that you might be able to label at Klopp is that he's clearly maybe prioritised the Premier League and the Champions League, whereas Guardiola said, you know, we want to win absolutely everything. I think the way in which Stones has come back into the team for Laporte, who arguably, alongside Van Dijk, was the best defender last season... That partnership now with Stones and, and Diaz at the back is fantastic. Phil Foden's kicked on another gear. And, and it's strange because at the start of the season, a lot of people were questioning the way in which he's handling Phil Foden, the minutes he's given him. No one's questioning it now. We've got Phil Foden who can play in a number nine, who can play anywhere in that front three in the midfield. And Raheem Sterling. I mean, sometimes I do wonder if Ronaldo and Messi have set the bar so high that if anyone scores 24, 25 goals every season, we kind of snigger at it. Raheem Sterling has been absolutely on fire for the last four seasons and he's gone on, I think, another level to the point where I think him and Harry Kane are, when you look at that England squad, the genuine world-class players in there and Raheem Sterling might be even higher than Harry Kane in that terms of world-class conversation. I, I think he's built a team now that are going to go on and on. And, and I think the way in which he's evolved the team as well, this is a team, let's not forget, that lost company, that lost David Silva, looks like it might lose Aguero. And it's like he's kicked on with another squad. So, yeah, dangerous sight for any other Premier League manager. Guardiola looks happy again. He's not snapping in press conferences. And I always feel confident Guardiola is a scary one. Well, it's extraordinary. You really think they've done most of this without Aguero yeah, this season. And mm. Zeus isn't really the same sort of level of striker. And, and De Bruyne has been injured for a decent chunk recently. Yeah, interesting. A great stat about uh, Jesus. He's the only player to have scored in the Premier League, Champions League, League Cup and FA Cup in each of the last three seasons. And he's still not, he's still not sure of his place, which, which is mad, isn't it, almost? Actually, on, on that point, Glenn, about, uh, that um, Addy made about Sterling, he was captain in the Cup on Wednesday evening. Is that a sign also of his stature and his maturity? I think we've seen that for a couple of years now. I mean... Um... Uh, obviously, uh, he was uh, you know, became quite outspoken a couple of years ago. Now I think it was um, you know, about the racism in the sport has been directed at him, and um, he's become very much a sort of spokesperson and a leader for some of that group. I mean, he was those just lucky enough to be there the, when the Football Writers Association gave him the um, Football of the Year award. I mean, he spoke very eloquently then yeah, about did, his yeah. journey, you know, and yeah, and he's very much grown up, and he has grown up very much in the public eye. I mean, you think he was a well known figure at 17 it's not easy mm. you know but people of my generation don't forget how young footballers are and to do all your mistakes in public and he's become you know, very much a spokesman off the field and a leader on the pitch um, now he's just you know, he's just a tremendous player isn't he I mean 
Yeah, I suppose the other thing is they made seven changes at Swansea without even interfering with the impact of their possession and their movement. The philosophy is still strong. They're back to Premier League business against Spurs at the Etihad on Saturday. If if Spurs defend like they did last night, Addy, you know, we're going to get to about 20 nil, aren't we? <laughs> nothing, nothing will shock me with that game. And look, it was a fun game for the neutrals. It must have made Jose Mourinho's hair get a lot greyer than it already is, which is <laughs> which is some doing. But yeah, Spurs can't defend like that at all. Disappointing to see Spurs go out just because, again, Mourinho was there to win trophies and I thought this was an opportunity for him to have a run in the FA Cup, obviously in the Carabao Cup final. But you kind of wonder if that's going to be enough for Spurs fans just because of how dire the football has been other than yesterday night where it was actually quite entertaining and exciting. I think the bigger question for Spurs is how they reintroduce and get the best out of Deli Ali and Gareth Bell. And look, we've spoken about them at length, both of those players for the last sort of six or seven months. But Deli Ali's the intriguing one for me because, again, this is a guy that has got super talent. That doesn't simply go away, does it? Especially not when you're 24, 25. But he's only played 74 minutes of Premier League football this season, which I find just unbelievable. I really do find it unbelievable, especially considering that he was linked with a move to PSG and Mourinho and Spurs came out saying they want to keep him. I'm like, well, if you want to keep him, play him. Let, 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 let's see him on the field. So it's going to be interesting to see what Spurs do. I do wonder if all the players that played yesterday are going to, are going to play again against Man City. You kind of feel like they need a rest, but it clearly doesn't favour squad rotation. Has Harry Kane been rushed back on yesterday's evidence? No, got a goal again. I like Spurs when they play against the big teams or did like Spurs when they played against the big teams earlier in the season. Right now, the confidence doesn't look there. He, he sits back. He's going to stack the midfield as he always does. And yeah, you wouldn't be surprised if Man City put four or five past him. Yeah, you do get this sense of too much talent being wasted at Tottenham at the moment. You know, I take your point, Addy, about Delhi Alley. Something's gone wrong there. I, I suspect it's more personal than professional in terms of the relationship with his with his manager. Lest we forget another England international, Harry Winks, is, is nowhere near it at the moment, which I find strange. I want to concentrate, though, Glenn, on Gareth Bale. Look, we all know how Mourinho works. He's, he's pretty skilled at throwing people under buses. I, <laughs> I, I, I got that impression very much after the game last night when he was talking about Gareth Bale and him being surprised that that Bale wanted to have a scam because he wasn't feeling comfortable with, with with a potential muscular injury. When you talk, when a manager talks like that in public, it tells you a little bit about what's going on in private, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, a bit like the when you, the all or nothing video. I mean, it only ever seemed to be Deli Ali was getting told off by Marino and balled out. Even then, there were signs. It's not one that I mean. Chris Coleman was on talking about uh, Gareth Bale the other night, and he was saying that every time he sees him, it's like he's his first game back from injury. And you do wonder maybe there's one of those niggling, deep-seated injuries that are hard to pick up on scans. Yeah, and the players tend to know better than anybody, particularly players you know who, who reach their thirties who know their body pretty well. Yeah, obviously there hasn't been a chance to play for Wales, which is where Bale has excelled in the last uh, few years because obviously they've been very few internationals. But uh, you do wonder whether there is actually an injury problem there which the player is aware of and senses, but the medics can't pick up, in which case you know, mm. most managers will be sceptical, particularly if the results aren't going that well. Or whether there is something else. I, mean, I, I can't believe that Bal doesn't want to play after so many years of not playing regularly at Real Madrid. Yeah, and performing pretty well when he did get the opportunity when he played for Wales in the European Cup finals. Uh, I can't believe that he doesn't want to play, but it does seem there's obviously an issue there. And it's hard to imagine you know, the deal being extended 
and same with Ali. It's hard to see a future. But then Ndombele came back, you know, under Mourinho uh, when he looked like he'd never played for them. So it's you can't rule anything out. But clearly, time is running out as the season goes on. But don't forget, the last team to beat City were Spurs. Yeah, but when you look at it, I suppose I'll refer back to what we talked about right at the start of the the program, Addy. Players, managers, referees, they're flesh and blood. And I've always felt with Gareth Bale, he's a very grounded guy, puts football into a, probably a wider perspective than the most. You know, family's so, so probably, you know, as important to him, if not more important to him. And, you know, do we just look at it and say, well, okay, is it that surprising? You know, he's financially secure. He's got a great family life. You know, some players fade away earlier than others. Yeah, I mean, not everyone is going to want to play until they're nearly 40, like um, Ibrahimovic or, or Ronaldo. As some, some footballers are not built like that. Some footballers see football as a job and maybe he feels like his job is done. I guess for Spurs, you, you're not going to want to hear that because you're playing half of what we're led to believe is around 600,000 euros a week and they're not <laughs> going to want that. They're going to want some sort of return on that. Every time I've watched Gareth Bell this season, and look, we, we haven't seen him a lot, it does seem like he's in second gear. Like he's he's almost afraid to go to third gear and really kind of let the legs run out and really go the mm. extra bit of yard of pace. Like what Glenn said there, like he knows he's carrying a bit of a niggle that maybe is undetected. Maybe that's the this, this situation with him. But I have to be honest with you, though, I expected a bit more. I expected, in fact, not a bit more, a lot more. I was quite excited about the, seeing the, the idea of Kane, Son and Bell up front and what that could do in the Premier League. And I think Spurs fans, when I speak to them at least, are very disappointed with the return so far. And they don't put that stress on Jose Mourinho. They put it on Gareth Bell just because of the history of Real Madrid and the way it kind of ended there. And maybe we're starting to see why Real Madrid fans slightly turned on him towards the end there. Maybe why Zinedine didn't want to play him as well, just because he maybe isn't given everything we think or expect him to give. Yeah, I think also part of the problem would be that his wage packet is such an open book for people that it probably does inspire the sort of envy and resentment we talked about at the top of the podcast. You know, football is a, is a collective game, Glenn, but it's, it, you know, the focus obviously is on individuals. Let's look at Manchester United. They're at West Brom on Sunday and specifically Donny van der Beek. He didn't really take his chance in the FA Cup in midweek. Is he running out of chances at Old Trafford? Well, it depends on whether they decide to move him on at the end of the year and whether he wants to move on at the end of the year, whether they think, right, he's had a year to settle in, get the flavour, the, the pace of the Premier League and so on, and maybe step in next year. I mean, it partly depends on what happens to say with Pogba. I mean, it's quite a busy, crowded midfield um, there. I mean, Pogba did move on, for example, but then the vacancy appears. Clearly, he didn't get much of a start. He barely played at the beginning. He was given like five minutes here, five minutes there at the end of matches. You know, when he did get a game, he didn't really grab the opportunity, as it were. He's still relatively young. I mean, it's going to be a difficult one for him. I'd be inclined to think, you know, if you were him, you'd give it another year. You, you, you start, come back, you train really hard in the summer, you get yourself, you know, pretty sharp or whatever, and you think, right, let's really give it another go and give it a second year. Because it, it's early in his career. I mean, it, it could be one of those players who comes to England doesn't really make it, and then goes somewhere else and becomes a, becomes a star again. I mean, there's it, it's a lot of players of that. Uh, the ones who come out of Ajax tend to have slightly mixed returns. Some have gone on and been brilliant, and, and some obviously function better within that system. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, you look at De Litt and what he's done since he went to Juventus, and he kind of had that stop-start season as well. I, I actually feel quite sorry for Donny van der Beek just because I don't think he's had a good run of games to actually show what he's about and what he's capable of. I think... 
his biggest issue is the form of uh, McTominay and how he's performed when he's coming as well. Pogba's gone up, I think, another level. But it's funny because I remember Edwin van der Sar writing that letter and saying, look after our van der Beek. And I don't know if May United have looked after him exactly the way uh, Edwin van der Sar would have hoped. But I do think he needs a run of games. I do think um, it, it's, it's unfair to judge someone when you're given 20 minutes here and 30 minutes there and a couple of fleeting starts. I think he needs a bit more than that. But yeah, I, I expected a lot more from Donny van der Beek. But like Glenn said, I think a lot of those stars that have come out of that fantastic Ajax team that um, got to the semi-final and so close to knocking out Spurs, they haven't done that well. They haven't done that well at all. I think they need time to settle. We continually talk about this being the hardest league in the world, but then we expect players that have come from different different leagues, maybe slower leagues, different countries to kind of adapt and go on a lot quicker. Not everyone can be a Bruno Fernandes. It does take to some players a year, maybe even two years to really kick in and show us what they can do. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned Fernandes there. He's obviously, at the moment, pretty much carrying Manchester United. I want to look at another import. And people were a bit sniffy about Edinson Cavani when he turned up. I've been hugely impressed by his influence. It's quite a quiet influence, but it's pretty profound. You know, you look at him talking to other players and there's definitely almost, you know, a mission to explain there. What have you made of his impact, Glenn? Well, uh, the other impact, of course, is he scores goals, isn't he? He's got important goals. I mean, he's, I mean, you're right. There was a certain amount of scepticism. You know, is this coming for the you know the big payoff at the end of your career? It's like a little bit, bit of rest, talk of another country, as it were. But he's come in clearly very, very keen. You know, driven with desire to prove himself again, a new uh, in a new against a slightly sceptical public, and he's been excellent for them. He uh, he scored crucial goals. He's gradually edged Marshall out as the more senior player. And he has become very important to them. And as you say, it looks like he's a good influence around the dressing room. I mean, you can imagine imagine how much Mason Greenwood could learn from him in terms of yeah, movement, experience, timing of those runs, those sort of areas. So a very important player to have come in. And I guess it shows, in a way, in such a condensed season, I mean, getting, getting back to Van der Beek, there's very little opportunity for managers to work on players on the training ground this season because there's, the matches are coming so fast. You don't get like a week between games where you can do stuff. So if you come here as a already a fully fledged mature player who knows his game and, and, and might be more adaptable, it's easier for you. And if you're coming here slightly finding your way a bit more, I mean, Gavani obviously has, you know, left, left South America years and years ago, settled in new countries and so on. Therefore, he should hit the ground running quicker in that respect, than someone who's leaving home for the first time and he's much younger with only ever really one environment around him. Yeah, you make a really good point about the lack of training ground time uh, there, Glenn. I suppose um, you know, Arsenal, they're at home to Leeds on Sunday, Addy. Mikel Arteta as has actually had that week to pause, draw breath, draw some other conclusions about recent defeats, or that, that specifically the Villa defeat, He's probably needed the time on the training ground to get that team in order, hasn't he? Yeah, I think he probably needs a bit more time, if I'm honest with you, just because of how up and down this season has been. Um, look, Arsenal's at 11th and, you know, I'm old enough to remember an Arsenal team where th that's just simply not acceptable. Not acceptable at all. An Arsenal team challenging Man United, an Arsenal team where Wenger got them to top four every single season and that wasn't considered enough. That That's the reason Wenger lost his job. So it's weird to see the season they're having and they've only won nine. They've, they've actually they've actually lost more games than they won, which is incredible. Look, went completely over-reliant on, on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and you kind of felt if the, dry, the goals did dry up, 
where are they going to come from? What's going to happen? I, I think Lacazette started to improve and I think we're starting to see a bit of the Lacazette they expected. But Willian's been a complete disappointment since he's come to the club from Chelsea. There has been some positive this season. I think the two biggest, probably Emil Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka, who I think has been fantastic. I do think as good as Bukayo Saka has been in the forward line, goals and assists, I do think with the, the issue now with Tierney being out, and Cedric coming in, I do think it's important maybe to put Saka back in as a left wing back kind of role that he can clearly play. Seeing how Cedric's done, it does make me question again that the the the, the want, to, not the want, but letting Ainsley make the Niles go out on loan just because we know he can play so many different roles. I know he wants to play a midfielder, but I do think that would have been someone that could fill in right now for Tierney and done a good job, a solid job. But yeah, I, I am concerned with Arsenal I don't see what Arteta's really trying to do there what one thing he has done which I have to applaud him he's got a lot of the deadwood out or what he calls his deadwood to the club I do think there's still a lot that needs to be done at Arsenal again Arsenal in 11th in the league that's unacceptable if you're an Arsenal fan and an Arsenal fan that's been an Arsenal fan for a long time it's just unheard of I'm old enough to remember when actually Arsenal did finish 11th in the league a few times. <laughs> Before George I'm Graham turned ages. up. Yeah. I'm not being ageist on this podcast, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, are you are you old enough to, to remember when Arsenal and Arsenal against Leeds was a bit of a thing as well? Oh, absolutely, yes. Although quite a long time ago that was, obviously. But yeah, look at that. A couple of fellas, <laughs> Alan Clark, diving header. Yeah, all our yesterdays. Kids, ask your granddad. What about Leeds at the moment, Glenn? Patrick Bamford. He's a player who divides opinion. You know, my estimation is that he's not quite top level. Leeds fans will probably jump down my throat at that. What do you think Bielsa sees in him? I think he fits the Leeds system very well in that he's very, a very willing runner. He, you know, he runs into spaces. I mean, he pulls defences apart a little bit. He's got good timing. I mean, I like him, actually. He's, he's a very smart kid and he's been around a long mm. time, you know, working his way quite difficult from place to place doing well at some places like Muslim not doing so well at other places like Palace so he's got a lot of experience under his belt as to yeah what and I get the feeling he now knows his own game yeah and he he knows that it fits in he works well with Bielsa I mean in terms of um, yeah, so he, he stresses things he's very good at playing that back line oh, he gets in great positions you know, uh, his conversion rate is, is pretty good though he still misses one two chances you think he maybe should be scoring and he's only 27 he does so shines I mean you could see him progressing in a way, sometimes strikers do come through later in their career, yeah, when they get that bit more knowledge. Yeah, it's not as if pace has been a massive part of his game, like it's with some young strikers. It's more about his, his movement, his positioning. And I, quite, I, I like him, actually. I, I would like, I mean, the problem is there are so many, you know, <laughs> what great luxury of riches, but so many good strikers currently, you know, for England, which takes us back to an era we haven't seen for a long time. It would be nice to see him given a game. I just don't think, I wonder where Gav's got enough games to play all these strikers. But you get a feeling with his intelligence and his movement, he might fit in quite well in international football. It's a shame he's not had much experience with European football because obviously that, you know, he hasn't been in teams that qualified for it in the past. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I like him. I think, he's, I think he's certainly got something about him. And clearly at the moment, he's thriving on a huge amount of confidence. Mm. I think the player who impresses me most, at least, is Rafinha. Addy, I just get the sense that there's a summer transfer saga waiting to happen there. What do you think? Yeah, I think that there's a problem coming uh, I, I really do because I think he's a fantastic player like, I think Leeds have had so many good players this season I think Calvin Phillips has been good I think Jack Harrison Patrick Bamford you mentioned but this kid Rafinha this guy can do it all and, and we always like these special players he, he reminds me a bit of Mares 
Someone that is very tricky, can get to the bar line. A bit naughty as well in the tackle, which I don't think is a problem. I actually like that, especially in the Premier League. I think it's needed. And look, personally, I would love for him to give Leeds one more season. I'd love him to kind of hear what it's like when Ellen Road is full and United have to travel there or Liverpool have to travel in those type of games and those type of atmospheres. I just don't know if they're going to get it just because, I, I, again, I think he's going to be sort of a hot quantity and not just for teams in the Premier League. I know he's been linked with Liverpool, but teams abroad as well. I can see teams looking at him. It's just, it's just kind of what price tag do Leeds kind of let him go at? 40, 50, 60 million. He's certainly worth it because here we have a guy that we know can run. We know he's got the energy because you have to in a Bielsa team, but he's got a trick on him as well. And we don't really see that anymore. We don't see players do stepovers and tricks anymore. He's got the full lot. And I do think there's going to be a transfer saga for Leeds to kind of have to deal with in the summer. And will he throw his toys out the pram? As big as Leeds are, and they are a massive club, if someone does come in for him like a Liverpool or a City or, or anyone else in the top teams, will he throw his toys out the pram and say he wants to move? Possibly. Yeah. Well, while we're on all our yesterdays, Glenn, Patrick Vieira, he's being interviewed at Bournemouth following his sacking by Nice. Do you see that as a potential springboard for him back to the Premier League? Well, if he does well, which is by no means guaranteed, I mean, it will be quite an interesting appointment. I mean, he's never played in that division. You wonder how much he would know about recruitment players and so on. I mean, obviously, you get good context in France to bring in French players from France, but clearly there is no recruitment to be done at the moment. I mean, you are looking at trying to turn around what is already a good squad. I mean, Bournemouth have sold over £100 million worth of players since the summer, yet they've still got a good squad. Yeah, for the champion from a championship point of view, I mean, look for you look through the team. They've got some decent players, most of for the team. I know they've obviously just lost Josh King, but come the summer, you can see people at like Brooks, one or two others, possibly moving on as well. So it will become much harder for them to go up next year. I mean, yeah, teams traditionally tend to bounce back quickly, or not at all. Particularly teams of Bournemouth size, you know, clearly haven't got much revenue outside of the massive TV revenue. So it needs that they need to get this appointment right. Yeah, possibly uh, Tinder was the, the sort of the, the man who's on the spot, the cheap appointment. It may well have been that they needed a fresh voice at the time. You know, having been Eddie's number two for so long, it, not the right appointment. So you're looking at maybe my brother's a season ticket holder down at Bournemouth. I mean, he's looking at someone like Nigel Pearson. You know, experience of getting out mm. of that division. I see Debbie Wagner is also a candidate. I think that would be another potential appointment. I would say if, if I was the Bournemouth board, I'd be looking to appoint someone who had done it before, like Pearson or Wagner, rather than making a gamble with Vieira or Terry or someone like that. Because it's very, very important they get this right. And there's still scope to come through this year. Certainly for the playoffs, it's not for the league. I mean, Villa Villa made that appointment, Dean Smith, quite late on in the mid-season and climbed up for the playoffs and got up through there. So it's possible. Mm. You mentioned um, John Terry there. I think, Addy, we all probably assume that he's going to become a manager probably sooner rather than later. I suppose the question is, is he going to be a successful manager? It's difficult to know. It really is difficult to know. I mean, I mean, would you class Lampard's time at Chelsea's success? Some, some will say yes, considering what he'd done in the first season, getting them to a top four spot, doing well right now in the, in the Champions League as well. So it's, it's difficult to know. I, I actually like the link with Terry and Bournemouth just because we've seen Terry side by side with Dean Smith uh, and they got out of the Championship. So he's got experience of that. He played... Let's not forget for Villa in the championship as well. So I actually, if you were to ask me before Lampard became a manager, I would have actually said that Terry would be a more successful manager than Frank Lampard. So look, he's definitely got an opportunity. We've seen sort of players from that era do well. Stephen Gerrard's doing a fantastic job at Rangers. So it's difficult, but I actually think Bournemouth could be a good, 
a good job for him. But I do understand what Glenn's saying in terms of there's a good opportunity now for Bournemouth to still get out of that league and keep the players they've got. And there is still a good nucleus of players there. I do, though, think that Terry could be a, a, a man for that role. Not Vieira. I'm not convinced about the Vieira one. Just because, again, he's not played in that league. It's a difficult league. But I think the Terry one could be good. Yeah. Well, John Terry's already gone on record as saying that Mason Mount's a future England captain. You agree with that, Glenn? Quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, I think you can say one of the successes off Frank's reign uh, period at Chelsea was the development of Mason Mount. And yeah, he, he looks terrific, doesn't he? I mean, he's gone through that little period when uh, people say, oh, why haven't we got Jack Grealish? Why have we got Mason Mount? Uh, I think uh, it helped when Jack came out with an interview and said, well, basically, this room for both of us with different players. Yeah, he looks a terrific player. He's one of the excellent players there. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, they've got an interesting game, haven't they, Barnsley in the Cup? Uh, I was there when Barnsley beat Chelsea. Ooh, was it 10, 12 years ago now? And it's a great shame there won't be a fans there tonight because it was a fantastic atmosphere that night. You know, I can remember vividly the, the winning goal and that stadium absolutely rocking. Um, and that's one of the pity with some of these FA Cup games that we haven't got the big crowds because the, the Cup is particularly special with crowds. But yeah, getting back to Mount, he's done well because he got left out initially when the new manager turned up. And then he's got back in and he's shown that he needs to be playing every game. Uh, clearly, it's difficult for someone coming in from overseas who obviously would have done the videos, but you want to try and play everybody to have a look at them. But clearly, also at Chelsea, you have to win games as well. Quite a difficult balance now to come in mid-season with you know, quite a decent-sized squad of too many similar players. It looks like Thomas Tuchel's going to take a look at some of the fringe players against Barnsley. You know, he, he made a point of saying that Kepa deserves another chance. Did he just have to say that, do you think, Eddie? Yeah, probably. Um, but then, look, uh, to be fair, I, I thought Marcus Alonso was on his way out. I didn't expect to see him get minutes in front of Chilwell. So w- one thing I think we can say that Thomas Duke was doing, he's looking at everyone in the squad. I mean, who knew that hudson Odoi could play right wing back? I certainly didn't. So he's ever, given everyone a look. And I, I wonder, maybe he's not as convinced as we thought he might be about Mendy. We saw, I think, so towards the end of Frank Lampard's reign, made a few mistakes for Chelsea. Maybe he's thinking, you know what, Let, let's see what Kepa's about. Um, I think Thomas Tuchel's done well since he's come in. He's tried different players out. He's, we've seen different formations. I mean, everyone is going to get a go. I think that's fair to say. And it'd be good to see what youngsters play today because Chelsea have so many good youngsters. But um, I, I like what he's done since he's come to the club. There was that... I think eyebrows raised when he left out Mason Mount from from his first game. Was it Wolves? It was Wolves, Wolves, wasn't it? The first game against Wolves. But look, now Mason Mount's come back in. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Kante. Sorry, didn't really fancy Kante. Frank Lampard didn't really look like he fancied him. Does Thomas Tuchel? So I think that's a big question mark going forward as well. But going back to Kepa, I think, you know, I think Kepa might get a couple of games. He's definitely going to play today, I think, against Barnsley. If he does well... I think, again, we've seen Alonso come in for Chilwell. Who knows? One of the things, knows? One of the things about a new manager coming to any club, all those players in the bomb squad suddenly think, oh, hang on, we've got a chance here. Which must <laughs> which must mean training goes up a notch suddenly. And then you get that sudden energy of all those players who've been, no, they've got nowhere near the first team, suddenly think we've got a chance with a new manager. That's one of the impacts you do get from a new manager. Mm. Let's go into women's football, if we could, Glenn. It's an area of your expertise. It's the derby week in the Women's Super League. We've got a title race, which is probably what women's soccer needed. Certainly didn't need the Birmingham derby being postponed five minutes before kickoff. What, how do you see the state of play in, in the women's game at the moment? Generally, pretty good. I mean, the Birmingham thing was obviously not ideal, to put it mildly. I can see how it happened. You've got two local teams, Birmingham Villa, got no fans to worry about. 
So you're thinking, yeah, Villa have a fixture congestion issue. So you're thinking, let's leave this as late as possible. I understand it's a corner of the pitch was frozen. They're heated on it, trying to thaw it out. They play at Solihull Moors. And you can see how they would leave it as late as possible on the grounds that actually no one's travelled very far. Bit unfortunate for, uh, I know one journalist who d- driven down from the Yorkshire, 150 mile round trip and was there waiting for the kickoff. So the, they maybe didn't think about everybody who was at the ground and maybe give them a bit of warning that there could be a problem. But yeah, that's obviously not ideal. You know, I mean, Villa actually had a one of those pre-arranged tweets that went out saying, we've kicked off. This was five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, five minutes earlier, they called it off. Yeah. Um, yeah, why you shouldn't schedule your tweets, obviously. But so that wasn't ideal and not good. But then later on last night, obviously we had Chelsea be Arsenal and, and Chelsea were, were back to normal. Uh, you could say um, a very good performance. Uh, their outstanding signings, ended up Pernil Harder scoring a couple of good goals and Frank Kirby playing brilliantly. And on Friday, we got the Manchester derby, which is a, is a bit of a buzz about that. United coming into the league and making their presence felt quite quickly has certainly added added something, particularly around the, the match, the derby become a big one. And what was a big three has now become a big four. But the, the promising thing for the league is we have had a couple of results, like Reading winning at May night at the weekend and, and Brighton beating Chelsea's two-year record, unbeaten record at the weekend. It's shown that the teams at the bottom, we sort of had a top four and a, a bottom, a, a cluster of clubs at the bottom, that they, they, they can turn the, the top teams over. As Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager, said, yeah, if we don't do our basics right, if we're not humble, you can get turned over. Though it was a bit of a one-sided game. I mean, it wasn't one of those games when 28 shots against two and the two went in. Mm. I th- I'm looking forward to the Manchester derby. I think it, you know it's it's on BT Sport on Friday. I just get a sense that there, there'll be a bit of an edge to it, which obviously in, in the men's game, you know, that, that's taken as red. But I, I just feel that United are you know, coming on strong in terms of you know, their team development. They've got an you know, excellent manager in Casey Stoney. But, and there's always a but, in current circumstances, Addy, we've got to talk yet again about racial abuse. Mm. Um, Lauren James was the latest to be abused. There's a piece by her in, in The Telegraph where, where she says, I'm 19 years old, sitting here, writing about racist abuse. It's mad. Same time we've got Jan Danda abused after playing for Swansea against Manchester City. How can this still be happening in 2021, he asks. I'm so proud of who I am and representing Asians. You know, we've talked endlessly on this podcast about the issue. It seems to be getting worse, almost to the point where it's you expect it on a daily basis. What can be done? It's a difficult question, Mike. I mean, I've myself suffered racial abuse online. And I sat here and wondered what can be done to combat it. Sometimes I try and go the nice polite route and say education, I think that's important. And I still do think that is important from a very young age. But I mean, you look at Romaine Sawyers and the person that racially abused him was arrested and it was a 49 year old man. So that that's not an education thing. That's um, a case of prosecution. Prosecution needs to be big here. I'm gonna quote Darren Lewis and he says that, You need to crack a nut with a sledgehammer. Someone needs to be made an example of. And I I do believe that if someone is made an example of, the people that are wanting to type and thinking about typing and thinking about saying idiotic things online, stop. I don't think you're going to convert them from racist to non-racist. I think you you can put a stop to them wanting to do it or thinking about doing it. I think social media companies need to really take heed here. I know Instagram have come out recently, said they're going to, they're going to get a lot tougher on it. Twitter need to do the same thing. I think 
being able just to sign up online with your email address isn't enough. I think it needs to get to a stage now where there has to be some sort of verification steps, whether it, it means people have to leave their real address and real name and passport and driver's license so that if they are seem to be doing anything wrong, they're quickly identified. The police go and knock on their door and they're, and they're arrested. I mean, I was speaking to PC Stuart Ward, who's the first hate crime officer for West Midlands Police. And he says, look, it's tough and it's tougher than it should be because social media companies mm. aren't willing to give out details of people that do this abuse. And as long as social media companies like Twitter, Instagram and Facebook have that stance, it's going to be even more tougher. Again, I don't think it's an education thing now. I think it's a case of you need to prosecute, you need to make a statement and you need to be seen to be doing something. And right now, none of that's happening. Yeah, I, you know, Facebook says it's horrified by the abuse. Instagram says it will close accounts. But, you know, in this case, it's it's been going on for so long. You look at those statements and you wonder whether it's just PR posturing, to be quite frank. Rob Harris, Glenn, as we know, one of our best news reporters, football news reporters, you know, he's basically, he, he's spoken to Instagram and, and he's saying that Instagram users who racially abuse footballers won't be banned automatically. Only repeated racist messages will see the account disabled. Well, one, Instagram aren't sharing how many attempts or, or sorry, messages are representative of repeated abuse. We can't have any confidence in the system while people are dancing on the end of a pin. Absolutely. It's, it's too easy to do and there are not enough consequences for doing it. I mean, since how many crimes are you allowed to say, oh, you can do it once or twice. If you start doing it regularly, you know, then we're going to start arresting you. We're going to start, you know, punishing you. I mean, even speeding, you don't get let off a of first few speeding offences and say, oh, well, you know, mm. don't do it again or don't do it lots of times. Mm. Yeah, and then one of the more serious stuff. I mean, this is, um, it's just simply too easy. I, I do, it is one, I find it unfathomable why people would do it, but it's hard to sort of see, do you ignore it because there's lots of copycat stuff going away or do you actually, and I think we've gone beyond that now. I think it is a case, I agree with, you know, with Darren Addy, it needs major consequences to stop it happening. And unfortunately, I think that's going to have to come down to government level because the, I don't think the social media companies are too bothered as long as they're making money. I think, I think it has to come down to government level in, in demanding, you know, if you're going to operate here. But... And there is a but that becomes complicated in terms of identities because there are other areas and other countries where those principles of identifying people on social media becomes much more complicated and much more sinister. Yeah, and, and not just in terms of like uh, government repression, but yeah, countries where yeah, there's this state uh, sponsors of homophobia and those sort of things. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily want, we can all think quite a lot of countries where you wouldn't necessarily want activists to be easy to identify with government pressures. It is a very complex problem, but it certainly should be. Much easier to punish it. And the, the fundamental thing comes from stopping at the source in terms of, yeah, as soon as you commit an offence online, you are kicked offline. Yeah, you know, as I say, I, I suspect, very sadly, we'll be coming back to this subject, you know, in weeks to come. Speaking of what's to come, next week we've got the European competitions on the horizon, Addy. Do you think Spanish clubs are going to be handicapped by, by circumstance here? You've got Chelsea now are going to play Atletico in Bucharest. Uh, Manchester United in the Europa League are going to play Real Sociedad in Italy. What about the whole principle of returning to European competition at a time when the pandemic tells you instinctively, if nothing else, that travel isn't probably the best idea? Yeah, this is what I was 
kind of, I raise my eyebrows at your first statement about them being handicapped. Sometimes I, I look at the situation and think they're lucky to even be playing European football right now. Th this isn't the time to be hopping on a plane and traveling. You know, we're talking about borders being shut, different strands of the virus being identified in different countries and countries being afraid to let anyone in. It is strange though with sort of footballers because they're probably the most tested people on earth, it feels like right now. So if anyone's going to be okay coming into your country, it probably is footballers and staff members of a club. But I, I do look at the situation and think they're, they're lucky, I think, Mike, right now to even being allowed to have European football, which I, I guess goes on to a longer kind of take. And you kind of wonder what's going to happen with the Euros then. I, mm. I still kind of feel like the Euros are only, what, five, six months away. And right now we, we have sort of Champions League and Europa League games being played in countries where the host isn't part of so how the euro is going to be played but look I, I think right now European clubs rather than being handicapped should be lucky that these games are even happening I, I don't think just to come in on that I don't think there's an issue of handicap in that you know there are no home and away is currently meaningless I mean we've seen it in the results in the Premier League I mean you might you play anywhere what I do think should be happening these should be one-off ties in a neutral venue or whatever venue is able to host it yeah, if if a country can host one of the two teams, fine, host it there for logistical reasons. But if you if you have to move one of the ties, you probably have to move both these ties now. People have been quarantined coming to England. I mean, also Benfica clearly can't take place anywhere because you can't go in or out of Portugal or England from Portugal. Um, so you have to do it with some third 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 country. So both legs. So why not just have one game? somewhere uh, that eases some of the fixture problems yeah and and cuts down the amount of travel going on i don't think there's any home advantage to be had at the moment yeah well as we know sports administrators are professional ostriches and they bury their heads at the first sign of any bad news you know to take your point addy about the euros perhaps that's why uefa officials are insisting that that they're gonna continue as planned rescheduled for this summer i just can't buy that I think the best they can hope for is a one-nation solution. International football and the travel it requires poses a practical but also a philosophical problem in a pandemic. As much as we're looking forward to England playing Scotland, that's ultimately an irrelevance. I'd reschedule the tournament for 2022 and feed it into a Winter World Cup. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Addy and Glenn and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 